Our reading today is going to be in Exodus. We're continuing in a series on Exodus. So if you'd like to turn to, in your pew Bible, it's page 50, Exodus chapter 8, verse 20. We're going to read all the way through chapter 9, verse 12. As you turn there, I just wanted to say uh, something to sort of for you to be thinking about as you hear the passage. In today's sermon, I'm not going to be working through each of the plagues in sequence. We're up to the fourth, fifth, and sixth plagues. Rather than working through them in sequence, I want to be thinking about it in a, in a different way. I think we can learn about it this way, that each plague, I want you to be paying attention to there's things that are the before the plague happens. Think about like what is happening before the plague happens, then think about the plagues themselves, and then finally the response to the plagues. Each one, what we'll see is a process of intensification that is very instructive for us. And that's what I want you to think. And I'm going to give you three words right up front. You probably won't remember them, but I want you to hear them now because this is the whole structure of our sermon. You ready? All right, here it is. Distinction, destruction, dominion. That's what we're going to be thinking about. Let's read together. Starting at Exodus chapter 8, verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on, the day that I will, on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies." And Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. <laughs> Where did he just go? <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> good Lord. Okay, good. Plead for me. <laughs> <laughs> then Moses said, behold, I am going out from you and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very heavy, severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. 
but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them into the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, our prayer this morning is that we wouldn't just hear these words and comprehend them as a matter of ideas, but that you would, by your spirit, work them down into our heart so that we would understand them as your words for our life, your words for our community together, your words to us that we would understand and apply these things. And then, Lord, that you would work it out into our hands and feet because our desire is to be doers of your word and not just hearers of it. So, Heavenly Father, open our hearts and minds this morning to receive your word because we trust in you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, what we've seen in these plagues so far, we've now read six of them, including last week from Todd. He read the first, he worked through the first three. We see a pattern of intensification. And this intensification is heightening the drama, as we'll see. This is a conflict, it's a confrontation between the Lord and Pharaoh. And I mentioned early in the beginning, I want to get into this again, what I'd ask you to pay attention to is kind of like, rather than the plagues themselves, sort of like how each plague has a lead-in to the plague, and then the plague itself, and then the response to the plague. So let's look first at the lead-in to the plague, and I just wanted to say, this is something Todd mentioned last week, and it's worth pointing out. Did you notice that in the beginning here, in the fourth plague, Moses and Aaron are instructed by God to go out and meet Pharaoh when he's coming to the waters. So Pharaoh has come out to the waters, and they meet him there in a sort of respectful way, a place to meet him, and then they make their appeal. They send their warning out to Pharaoh. The next time, in the next plague, they don't bother waiting until he comes out to the waters. They actually go into the palace to meet him, a little more pushy there, a little more intrusive. And the third time, we read, there's no warning at all. It's like really intrusive, right? And we see the same pattern. You saw that last week's with plagues one, two, and three. First they meet Pharaoh by the water, then they go into the palace, and then there's no warning at all. And so there's a, a three cycles of these three plagues. And for that reason, it seems like a good idea to read this in a, as a series of three plagues. All right, that's the beginning point. Now what we're gonna see is that these series intensify not only themselves, like each plague builds on the other in a way, but also the triads get more intense as they move along. 
Can you think of another portion of scripture that is this way, where you have these, you read it in sort of cycles that are intensifying? Any thoughts about this? I know it's a big congregation, and if you were saying it somewhere back there, I can't see anyway. So, but it's Revelation, right? If you've read Revelation before, it has a similar pattern of these intensifying cycles. And so too in Exodus, as we read today. So let me give you an example of this. We've seen how there's a cycle leading in. Here's another picture of leading in. In the first three uh, plagues last week that Todd spoke about, remember plague one, where, they, where God turns the water into blood. Do you remember how he had instructed Moses, Moses, go tell Aaron to stretch out his staff over the waters. What does that staff signify? The staff signifies the authority of God being exercised through his agents. This staff is the authority of God, and the staff of Pharaoh is powerless to stop it. So stretch out your staff over those waters, and this is what's going to happen. And then in the second plague, do you remember that was frogs? Again, Aaron, stretch out that staff over the waters. Again, Pharaoh is going to be powerless to stop it. And then in the third plague, this time it's stretch out that staff, Aaron, over the land, over the dust of the land. And again, Pharaoh is powerless to stop it. You get the principle here. It's interesting, isn't it? I don't know if you caught this, but in the plagues we read today, four, five, and six, did you notice any staff? No, now it's getting intensified. God isn't even using means anymore at this with, with the fourth and fifth plagues. It's just direct. He sends the flies against Pharaoh, right? In the sixth plague, we hear that his hand is going to lay heavily on Egypt. His hand, that's significant too, right? What does the hand of God signify? His power. And so what have we seen? We see God's agents speaking his word, and then we see them rise, raising the staff, and then we see them the hand of God. The word, the staff, the hand, the authority of God, and the power of God overwhelms Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has nothing to stand in light of that power. Amen? So far, so good. Now, then there's a second thing, and this is really uh, the important one here that I want us to see. Last week, it didn't make any mention of this. Plagues one, two, and three, everybody suffered, but what was the big thing about the warning this time that was different? That word, distinction. God, we saw, made this distinction. He exempted the Hebrews from first the Hebrews' land, and then the Hebrews' animals, and then the Hebrews themselves. That which is God is exempted from the plague. Now, why is that significant? That's a significant intensification from last week. Why? You could argue for plagues one, two, and three, not very convincingly, but it could be argued that those were natural phenomena. You could sit there and say, again, not too convincingly, but nevertheless, it could be pointed out that up in Ethiopia, once a year, the all kinds of uh, silt gets into the water and the Nile may run red. Natural, see? And every year you have frogs inundating the land. Not as bad as this, admittedly, but you know, that's a natural phenomenon. And gnats or mosquitoes, as Todd pointed out, or lice, it's unpleasant, but it's a part of life, right? The thing is, with these plagues, you can't appeal to nature anymore. It is clearly supernature because, because the Hebrews are excluded from this. You cannot deny that this is now the finger of God. This wondrously shows the sovereign power and the authority of God, and at the same time, it reveals the emptiness, the vanity, the utter lie of Pharaoh's dominion as a god. Here is this fraud sitting on his throne by the Nile saying that he himself is responsible for the annual inundations of the Nile and God is going to take this down. This is a lie and a fraud and a falsehood. Amen. And it's more than that. If 
Pharaoh were just some lunatic, if he were just a deluded person on the sidelines, I suppose it wouldn't matter all that much. But the problem is, is that Pharaoh has power. And in this power to call himself a god, he is degrading human beings and enslaving them. He's degrading the land, he's degrading the animals, and he's degrading human beings, and God won't have it. And so what we see here in this distinction of the Hebrews, this exemption of them, is a wondrously showing of God's sovereign purposes. Now I'm using this word wondrously show on purpose because it's kind of interesting. I want you to see, there's a Hebrew word, palah, and that word means to make a distinction, to separate, and to wondrously show. Let me just go into this a little bit. It's just kind of fascinating. It's connected to that word wonders, as in signs and wonders, you know? And what are wonders anyway? We could think of wonders as these extraordinary, marvelous things, things that can't be explained by recourse to natural phenomena, things that direct our gaze up to supernatural things, under the work of God. Again, that wonderful word, wonderful. You read that in scripture, when we read wonderful, it's the same word. You know, the throne name of our Christ, our Lord. What is the throne name of our Lord? You know, it handles Messiah, wonderful. Okay, you know, I'm not gonna sing the Messiah again. <laughs> but it's, it's my favorite song. It's that exciting thing every Christmas. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That is his name, and what is the first word there? Wonderful. Our Savior's name is wonderful. How glorious is that? That's a good name for our Savior. What I want you to think about for a second is at first I, I was grappling with this this week. What is the connection between these two unrelated concepts? Are you following this? It's like on the one hand it means to, to make distinct and to separate, and on the other hand it's wonderful. How do they connect? And then you realize it's completely connected. And I want to explain how. It's somewhat akin to the way we use the word distinguish. When we distinguish one thing from another, we're sort of separating them. And at the same time, when someone is distinguished, what? They're being lifted up in the estimation of others. They're being exalted somehow. And so what we're seeing here, uh, this is a distinction that lifts up. It is an act of God, not, by, not out of their own worth, but that out of this act of grace that lifts up and exalts. As God makes this distinction, he separates the Hebrews and lifts them up and at the same time wondrously shows not only them as enjoying God's favor, but him who is the source of that favor. Do you see that? There's a lot of theology in that one word. Who knew? So this is wonderful. God wondrously shows his wonderfulness. Psalm 139, one of my favorites, and, and here's the verse, 139, 14. I praise you, for I am wonderfully and fearfully, well, I'm sorry, fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Now, so many times in the past, I read that and I hear, oh, wonderfully, you know, I'm wonderfully made. What does that mean? It's like awesome and really intricate, I suppose. And it does mean that. But it's something more we now see. It means I'm wonderfully made. I'm set apart. I'm not just a run-of-the-mill creature. I am privileged by God's grace through nothing I did to be his image bearer on this planet. It is a privilege to be a human being, to be here this morning to worship the living and true God. Do you ever realize what a privilege that is? That we bear his image in this world and we can go out of this place and reflect his glory to the darkness. That is fantastic. 
And in the same way what he did with Israel. Not because they were the best or the most or the greatest, but exactly the opposite. They were the last and the lowest and the least. And God took Israel, Exodus 33, how shall it be known I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? What a beautiful picture of God's grace to us are these things, that he lifts us up and separates us, makes us distinct. And here's the, I really am excited about this. I want you, brothers and sisters, to realize this applies to you. Here, you and I this morning. Psalm 17, wondrously show us your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. For us this morning, we have been ingrafted into the promises of Abraham. We have been blessed by God himself. He has lifted us up by his grace and given us Christ. He has separated us from the world and exalted him, exalted us in his purposes. You are a chosen race, a, a holy priesthood, a royal nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh, do you see that? Do you ever wake up in the morning and think that about yourself? I wake up in the morning and have all kinds of negative thoughts. I look at myself in the mirror, it's like, I, you know? <laughs> and then, but just read that verse, put it in front of you and it changes your perspective. You are a royal priesthood. You are here to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of his darkness into this marvelous light. Wow, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We have been lifted up to reflect God's glory. What a wonderful, what a wonderful thing that is, that you are God's and we are his. And we are distinguished, not by our worth, but by the unmerited favor and grace of our loving God. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. Amen. Come what may, all the way, his word is true, and he will do what he said he'll do, and he's mighty to save. That's the first part. Distinction. He makes this distinction. Now I mentioned about how this very act of distinction shows Pharaoh the emptiness of Pharaoh's lives. And this gets to our second part here, the plagues themselves, destruction. As we think about these plagues, with this too we learn a couple of things. We pointed out that the first three plagues, you could sort of argue were natural, and the second ones you can't, they're more supernatural. We also have to note that the second plagues are getting more intense, the second set of plagues. Let's face it, the first plagues are not pleasant, and they would have been very uncomfortable, frankly awful. You've got the water turned into blood, and then you're inundated by frogs, and then you're dealing with gnats, or even worse, as Todd pointed out, mosquitoes. I mean, that's not pleasant. But let's say this, it is just an annoyance. This is a whole different level, what we're seeing now, number one, with the flies. Have you ever been uh, subject to a swarm of flies? That is not a pleasant experience, because unlike mosquitoes, that at least you could slack these things, these flies are fast, and they are relentless at you, relentless, and it hurts. Can you imagine being inundated by swarms of flies throughout the land, and it gets worse? Then the, the, uh, the plague against the cattle in which the cattle are getting sick and dying. And then finally these boils, these festering sores that people are struggling with misery and pain. Now at this point the message is clear enough for everybody it seems but Pharaoh to understand. He is totally powerless against the Lord and what he really ought to do is repent and let his people go. 
What are we seeing here? Step by step, the Lord is stripping Pharaoh of all of the lies, all of that apparatus of lies that keeps him in power, all of that religious nonsense, all of the magicians on the side. One by one, they're being taken down until finally it'll just be the Pharaoh versus the Lord, which is an absurd contest, but it must be shown. Oh, arise, O Lord, let not man prevail, it says in Psalm 9. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This is what this is about. Pharaoh needs to know that he is but a man. In the sermon last Sunday, which I thought was awesome personally, I took so many notes, it frightened me. I mean, whole, the front and back of this thing. Do you remember that Todd was going through how these plagues are sort of God's judgments on the gods of Egypt? Exodus 12, 12, on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, right? And we talked about the three gods. Do any of you remember them? That the, the first plague, the water into blood, was this uh, sort of taking down the god Hopi who is a um, bearded male god with breasts and a pregnant belly. Like, okay, that's, that's Hopi, the god of the Nile. And then you had Hecate, the sort of frog-headed goddess. And then you had Geb, the god of the dust. And you put them together, you have Hopi, Hecate, and Geb, which sounds like a law firm to me. <laughs> Hopi, Hecate, and Geb. You know, I could see that. Now, we could keep doing that through all 10, and especially, you know, here. But what's interesting about this, in a way, for this week, it doesn't matter. These are all false gods anyway. It's almost like, why do I have to teach you about these false gods that were figments in their imagination anyway? They're figments and fragments. The real thing that God is doing here that I want you to see is throwing chaos at Pharaoh. He's taking down the world order of Pharaoh. He's showing him to be empty. What God did in Genesis 1, speaking the world into order, speaking light into the creation, bringing order into chaos. Think about it this way. What judgment is, is the opposite. He's using his word to bring chaos over order, and Pharaoh is powerless to stop it. Amen. So before I move on, there's a concept. We're going to learn a little Egyptian. Are we ready? The idea is ma'at, ma'at. And ma'at is this idea that's the concept of truth, justice, right, universal harmony, almost like the idea of logos in the New Testament. It's this notion of order, and it's this world of a well, it's a picture of a well-ordered world, and in Egyptian theology, guess who controls ma'at? Who is responsible for keeping the world in order? Pharaoh. And how does he do it? Through his divine utterance. Okay, do you get that? So the, the plagues here are basically God's assault against Ma'at, and Pharaoh is shown to be utterly powerless to stop it. This is about the unmasking of a false god, the idolatry of human power embodied in Pharaoh. Amen. And now we move to the third part. All right? We did distinction. We did destruction. Now let's take a look at the responses to the plagues. There are two responses to the plagues. There's that of the magicians, and then there's that of Pharaoh. Do you remember last week, it was kind of, at first the magicians were all like, ah, I don't care about this, we can do that too. You turn the water into blood, we did it too. We're not impressed. And then the second one, we did this thing with an inundation of frogs, we can too. Uh, but then the third one, they couldn't do. Do you remember? And they said, clearly, this, this, uh, this is the finger of God here, where we don't know what to do. This week, did you notice in the first two plagues this week, the magicians don't even show up at all. They're just kind of presumably standing there silently and impotent in the face of God's power. And then in the sixth plague, they do show up, 
And we learn that now they can't even stand in Pharaoh's presence because they have boils and it's painful. And I think we are supposed to laugh at that a little bit. These mighty magicians can't even come into the presence of Pharaoh. There's an element here, I think, also that they're rendered sort of ritually unclean. They can't be in the presence of Pharaoh. God has taken them out too, his advisors, his sidekicks. Much more important, let's look at the Pharaoh's response. Every time, you know what it says, it says something about his heart, his heart is hardened. No matter what, it keeps coming back to that same refrain, his heart is hardened, until the last plague, the sixth one, when he says what? The Lord himself now hardens Pharaoh's heart. Did you see that? That's really interesting. All this time, it's like Pharaoh, it's like, nah, you're not getting through, my heart is hard. By the end, it's the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart. <laughs> Pharaoh's heart. Let's try that again. Now, what is hardness of heart? When we think about that word, I, I, you could think about it as irrational, exist, uh, irrational resistance to God. It's sort of like a resolute refusal to give God the glory in spite of all the evidences in reality all around us, where there's no excuse, right? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And you have to get pretty smart in this world to get that dumb to begin to deny God behind this, all of this stuff that we have no excuse. The world declares God's existence. And yet is that resolute refusal, I will not give God the glory for what most evidently you ought to be giving God the glory. Why? Why this tenacious refusal to give God glory? And I think ultimately it's rooted, isn't it, in the idolatry of self in the idolatry of me. I am the master of my universe. My will be done. I'm gonna follow my own heart. I'm free, I'm sovereign, my life, right? It's, I'm like this plastic thing. I can be whatever I wanna become, whatever I decide I'm gonna become, and I'm gonna impose it on a plastic world. It used to be that it's God over nature, and now it's me over nature, right? It's this world It says, follow your heart, says the world, which said to me and brought me almost to ruin, Follow your heart. And what does Jeremiah 17 say about the heart? The problem with that is that the heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Do you want a picture of the world? It's just consider an addict. You're telling an addict to follow his heart? That's a bad idea. But I feel free when I follow my heart. Yes, but you're going to follow it according to the deformity of its impulses every time right to hell. And brothers and sisters, understand this, that an addict is a canary in the coal mine of what all of us have. That's what sin is. Sin is this propensity, this inexorable propensity, this deformity of our heart to desire what is wrong. And we will go the same way every time. Follow your heart to hell. And what God is saying in the gospel is, no, I will give you a new heart, that heart, that hardened heart of yours. I will give you in Christ a heart of flesh. I will free you from the dominion of sin. I will redirect your very life to God and to the wonderful things of life and hope and joy. You will desire things you had not desired before. I will liberate you so that you can have life and hope. Isn't that beautiful? that for Christians, the Lord reigns. We're free because we, we give this up. We give up this terrible burden of our sin, this terrible burden of having to be master of my universe. We give God the glory. And the result of it is we become free. Isn't that beautiful? Maybe there, before we end this, isn't there one thing you're thinking? I have one problem. What is it? Well, 
is it fair? Is what fair? Is it fair that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart? Do you ever wonder about that? Is that fair? Let's remember this. This is something important. This is God's judgment against Pharaoh, who when Moses asked to free his people, he says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go, right? He's that guy. The Pharaoh is more than just something that it's not just, it, think of the Nazis, right? When we're fighting evil, the idea was not, as they began to make sounds in 1945, of like, well, maybe we can have a conditional surrender. It's like, there is no conditional surrender at this point. This is radical evil, and you're going down. And what God is saying here about Pharaoh is, this isn't about saying you're sorry, you're going down. This system is the embodiment of everything wrong in the world. It is the embodiment of human power and the celebration of human power that degrades and enslaves the land, the animals, and the humans. And you will not stand. You, Pharaoh, are a picture of that ancient serpent. You wear the serpent on your hat. You are the picture, the embodiment of that ancient dragon, Satan. You are an embodiment of Antichrist. Now, brothers and sisters, this is where it gets serious. What we're seeing in Pharaoh is just a, an anti, as a type, as a shadow, a mere shadow of what Christ has done for us. Christ, our Lord, came into the world to bring all this down, to bring this lie down of Pharaohic power, this, this falsehood that has existed from the beginning. Jesus came to crush the head of the serpent, to plunder the strong man's house, and to destroy root and branch Satan's kingdom forever. When you and I say, thy kingdom come, what we're saying is, may Satan's kingdom that enslaves human beings be destroyed forever. May your kingdom of grace come and liberate us, Lord. May your kingdom of glory be hastened. Come, Lord Jesus. Bring the freedom that you bring. Amen. One more thing, and then I'm done, I promise. This is important. Remember I was talking about ma'at before. Todd brought this up last week, but this is kind of what it all connects together. Remember, ma'at is the universal principle of order that Pharaoh keeps, supposedly. In Egyptian religion, when someone dies, the idea is that you'll go and they'll take your heart and put it in a balance there, and your heart will be a balanced against a feather, and that feather is the embodiment of ma'at. And think about that for a second. Your heart versus a feather. Your heart versus mat versus justice. And, it, and if your heart is heavier than that because of sin, if your heart is heavier than that feather, it's going to start to sink down those scales. And waiting there is a crocodile, the crocodile god, Amit, who's going to eat your heart, meaning that you'll not be able to go into paradise and enjoy blessing forever. That's, that's your Egyptian religion. Isn't that interesting? It shows us something about the universal idea of justice there, although it's a little warped, isn't it? What I want you to see about this is what God is saying here is that Pharaoh is but a man. This man is going down. You are not a god, right? You are going down. What is the crisis? What is Pharaoh's problem? He will not give God the glory. Last point, that word for his hardness of heart is the same word for heavy, heavy. What God is saying is, your heart is heavy, and you are go you're going to be devoured. You are nothing. The answer to the heaviness of our heart, to the burden of our sin, is to give God the glory. 
The answer to this is to give God the glory, is to give our sin to Christ who takes that sin, to him alone who can bear the sins of the world, to him alone who could bear the greatness of that title, Wonderful Counselor. What man can be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting God, Almighty Father, Prince of Peace? No one but Christ the Lord. So brothers and sisters, let us give glory to him. Let us give glory to him who can bear the weight of glory and then find ourselves free in Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the life and the hope he brings to us, for the joy for the newness, for the breath of life. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have taken the weight of our sin. You took it and put it on your, our, on your Son, our Savior, Jesus. And in turn, his righteousness was given to us so that when you see us, Lord, what you see is the righteousness of your Son. We are forgiven. We are seen as your children. You delight in us with the love of a father for his children. Heavenly Father, would you help us to go forth from this place, singing praises, glorifying you in all your truth and your beauty and your goodness, the true God, the true and living God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.